Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Welcome back, faithful listeners. I'm Stevie Mata. I'm T. Cole Newton. And coming to you pre-recorded for my Mid-City Bar 12-Mile Limit, it's time for Around with Steve and Cole. Welcome back, faithful listeners. We are recording this episode inside on a pretty busy Sunday morning. We have the Saints kicking off here in about an hour. We've got a couple of great guests for you today. We've got Mr. Bradley Smith from Beach Bumberry's Latitude 29. Hello, everybody. And Dr. Arwen Podesta, longtime regular here at 12 Mile Limit. Hey, what's up? Well, we are here to talk about a very lively... Oh, yeah. Hi. <laughs> We've also got the Shadow King of New Orleans, oh, Mr. Steve Yamada, co-host extraordinaire. For a second here, I thought it was around with Cole Newton. <laughs> Get out of here, Steve. It's my show now. Goodness. <laughs> All right. Um, cool. Well, I'm going to just go ahead and send my piece now before I get blocked <laughs> yeah. out again. So... Um, uh, today, uh, this is an episode we've been wanting to do for a little while, but we definitely wanted to get the right pieces in place, uh, to do it. Um, so there's three things that link me, Cole, and Brad together at the moment. And we're all bartenders. We've been bartending for many years at this point, uh, different amounts of many years, which we can get into in a little bit. Uh, but at the moment, we are all sober. None of us drink at all. Well, so. sober-ish. So, I, I, I drink a little, but not by the standards of New Orleans bartenders. To right. <laughs> uh, I don't drink at all anymore. The last thing I had to drink, I had one beer when I was in Philadelphia a couple weeks ago, but it just seemed nice, and I was with some people, and it wasn't that big of a deal. But besides that, uh, nothing since Run Amok, and before that, nothing since last May. Last I talked to you about it specifically, you said you, you don't drink in New Orleans anymore. That's your rule. That's kind of the rule that I'm going with for the most part. And yeah. it's been working for you? That's been pretty good so far. Uh, we, we can talk about what led me there for the most part. All right. Well, we've got three yeah. sober bartenders, and Arwen here is an addiction medicine specialist. That's right. Uh, you, uh, so, psychiatrist, holistic uh, medicine expert, uh, also a massage therapist. In my past days, yes. Okay. <laughs> I don't mix those. But you don't yeah. do that anymore? Yeah, no, not, not to the patients. But yeah, but so uh, I specialize in addiction medicine. I'm a psychiatrist, and I uh, run a pretty robust practice here in Mid-City near 12 Mile Limit. Uh, and then also have a bunch of facilities where I work and am medical director doing addiction medicine. I've got to imagine there's a pretty solid business for addiction medicine in New Orleans, given yeah. our uh, loosey-goosey attitude with substance abuse. I mean, we New Orleans was really founded on, what, fake gold and heroin, right? So oh. I'm kind of in the right place. If I wasn't a banker, or uh, I might as well be an addictionologist or a bartender, you guys. You is know? addictionologist a proper term? That is, yeah. Huh. Yeah. I mean, no offense, but that sounds slightly made up. I know, it does. Yeah. <laughs> like it's intoxicologist. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, though. are you a... Yeah, uh, that's also, yeah, intoxicologist makes me think it's like, addi- addictionologist is like, are you pro or anti? It's right. hard to tell based on that right. one. Right, you're an expert, <laughs> yeah. either way. Fair enough, Yeah. fair enough. <laughs> an expert either way. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, how we all came to the decision individually to... To either cut back or quit drinking in our sure. own lives. Let's go ahead and start with uh, Brad, actually. Yeah. So, Brad, why don't you go ahead and start uh, off by just telling a little bit about yourself, your career as a bartender, sure. and where you are now. So, I first jumped behind the bar in 1993. It's a long time ago. Uh, 
pretty much always wanted to be a bartender as a kid. I mean, had dreams of, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a professional athlete or I'm going to be a, a professional musician and, you know, followed the path, went to college, studied philosophy, studied some radio TV film, but inevitably end up as a professional bartender. Um, my, my childhood was an interesting one. I grew up in a very devout Pentecostal Christian family where... You know, the focus, we never really talked about feelings. We never really talked about uh, goals. We didn't talk about you know, higher education, those sorts of things, because inevitably all things came down to the idea that God was going to take care of you and that, that at the end of the day, that's what truly matters, how you lived your life. Did you live it in service to Jesus Christ? And so I, I feel like that was sort of the beginning of the end for me. So as I got into bartending and you know, the reward pathways that come from, from alcohol, which are really similar to uh, close friendships. I never really had close friendships as a kid. You know, we moved around a little bit, but uh, I, was, I was kept away from a lot of things because of my parents' belief where you know, things like school dances or rock and roll or, or specific movies were deemed inappropriate for me because they were not they, they, they were essentially from the devil yeah. so, <laughs> so I get into, get into bartending in that first job when you get into restaurant culture and how, how close knit a restaurant can be how everybody sort of hangs out after work and there becomes this sort of semblance almost of like a, a family so that combined with alcohol I think was sort of this double reward for me and as in moving forward in you know i definitely did not have the tools i i still think that i i'm working on developing the tools of true sort of emotional growth and and uh, really understanding how to be in touch with with myself as a person Uh, alcohol definitely became sort of an i mean it was escapism it was a, a way of of feeling that sort of reward, that sort of burst of dopamine, um, but in a in a pharmacological way. And as my life progressed, and as you know, life moves on, and you experience various problems and you know, things come up, uh, alcohol became more and more a part of how I dealt with things, or. <laughs> Or did not deal with things, really, is what it comes down to. How you suppressed dealing with things. Exactly. Right? Yep. And it, it was that, but it was also, in sort of thinking about this show and thinking about really what was it, it was that initial burst of dopamine. That was the thing. That's what I love about alcohol. That's, that's what everybody loves about alcohol. Yeah. I mean, let's be real about it. You know, we are bartenders. We are drug dealers. And... You know, White I, collar I, drug pushers. Absolutely, and there's nothing wrong with drugs. I think that <laughs> I think that the that we need to talk about how we define drugs. There's such a stigma associated with it. I mean, a drug is what it's something that you put in your body that really has no nutritional value that immediately affects you, but physiologically, somewhat psychologically, yeah, and then slowly dissipates over time. That's so, right, causing a dopamine spike. Right. Every drug of any abusable drug causes that dopamine spike that you're talking about. So that's nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, but also 
cocaine, sugar, methamphetamine, sugar. Sugar is like, a huge Sugar is a huge one. All yeah. of these things are drugs. And so. alcohol has the combination of the actual alcohol and the sugar, which is also equally. Which nice. makes it perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so uh, as life progresses and as I continue to turn to alcohol really to sort of dull what's really going on, which is, you know, I'm suppressing a lot of things. Uh, issues start to rise up. Um, the best thing that happened to me was 10 years ago, I met a woman who um, changed my life. And we have been through a bunch of shit together. Like, we all, both have, have struggled, but we've done it together. She has had my back the entire time. And she is a huge reason why I'm sober. Because I never really had true emotional connection with a human being, and she she demanded it. She <laughs> she saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, and here I am. I, I give her a ton of credit for the fact that I'm sober, that I I feel like I have a true true relationship with with a human being for the first time in my life, and uh, she's helped open my eyes to to what was going on with me, which was. I used alcohol as a tool. A now, escape. truly, now I got I got sober for the first time, truly sober, uh, three years ago, and I was sober for almost two years. And I got to the point where I thought, you know, it's been two years. I I have developed new new ways of sort of triggering that reward mechanism in my brain. You know, I was meditating. I started to draw. I picked up my guitar again. Started to read. I, I told myself, you know, I, I've developed these healthy habits. I bet I can drink again. So I gave it a go again. And boy, you know, old habits die hard. I mean, it started off fine, but sure enough, I was chasing that high. You know, I liked that initial burst of dopamine. So I did it for the, you know, the end, of, end of last year, the beginning of this year. Uh, cut it out again in July. Just realized that. It's, it's not going to happen. I, I, my relationship with alcohol, we are excellent business partners at terrible lovers. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Well, I think, that's uh, how I got here. Right on. I think one thing that you uh, brought up I can definitely relate with. I think anybody who's worked in the service industry as well or, you know, in social interactions, I mean, that's what a, a bar is for the most part. It is this uh, social interaction that you have, a place that you feel comfortable with, a place that you can relax and unwind. And then, you know, the people that you work with inside of a bar, too, you said it's like a family. Truly. I think that's one of those things that, you know, people have to be more careful with. You know, like a lot of people get into the service industry. I got into the service industry when I was 18 years old. I mean, before that, I was working in my dad's kitchen as well. And, you know, afterwards, after work, you, you know, have a beer, you have a drink, and you hang out with some people, sure. and you form these very... Trade war stories, yeah. and that's that's part of it. And you form these very quick bonds that, like, yeah. they're very superficial when it comes down to it. That's the thing the that thing. connects you and a lot of these people who are like your family is you work together, and then you drink together. Yes. And if you only have those two things going for you as well, it's like, when you bottom out, you don't really have that support network you're looking for. And there's a real danger, I think, in the New Orleans community. There's some great people who will be there, and they will have your back. But then there's a lot of people as well, too, from the bartending side, who I think it's like, you know, like... When you bottom out, you're essentially picking up a mirror and saying, hey, look at this. Yeah. And nobody wants to confront that. Yeah. I realized I had a real problem with uh, drinking, and I never thought I had a, a huge issue with it as well. Um, alcoholism runs in my family, if I'm not mistaken. My, my, my family doesn't talk about uh, too much about like a, a lot of our health issues or sure. past and everything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, both my mom and dad... Uh, 
kind of got away from their families. My dad moved from Japan. My mom got out of Indiana. So we never had, like, really big family ties. Uh, but I believe my grandfather was an alcoholic, um, from what my mom says. And I know my mom quit drinking at a pretty – when she married my dad, they stopped drinking almost completely. Uh, so I, I knew it was always something that was kind of lurking there. And I always would credit myself with thinking, like, I don't have an addictive personality. So, you know, I drop out of college, and I'm, like, you know, bartending and making quick cash and spending things and, you know, doing various amounts of drugs and a lot of drinking. And live in, live in my 20s just as hard and fast as I possibly can. And honestly, I don't think it was ever that big of a problem. And by the time, like, even three years ago, when me and Brad started working together, um, I wasn't drinking that much. And when I was managing Latitude 29, uh, we, we do shift drinks over there. Uh, I would typically not even get a shift drink. On a rare occasion, I would get a double zombie. Um, I, 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 kinda, <laughs> I that's remember a very one zero to one hundred. Yeah. <laughs> one of the few people over there that has seen Steve Yamada thoroughly oh, yeah. <laughs> There are a few people who have seen me uh, drunk in this city. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I kind of realized I was pushing my drinking habits into binge drinking. That was my yeah. big problem. Is like I would save up, and then it's like I've been good for X amount of time. I'm going to just get blotto completely just wasted make an ass out of myself and as long as nobody remembers it it's not a big issue uh <laughs> when i was working at uh, I, I think i can say it now because nobody says I've, I've been dancing around the issue but i was working for the ace hotel and it was not a great job situation for me not, it's not completely on them um it, it was not a good fit for myself and so, that's the worst professional situation i've been personally and a lot of that was of my own creation because uh that is one job that i would drink at a lot i would drink while i was working there i was you know like, there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of stress, and I would just go back behind the bar and grab a bottle of Appleton and, you know, drink straight from the bottle or steal a beer out of the uh, out of the cooler and go drink it in the alley real quick and just, like, blow off some steam, have a cigarette or something like that. And I didn't like that, you know? That's just that's one of those things that was a very temporary fix for me. It made me feel a little bit better in the moment, but end of the day, I would get home and just like, what the hell am I doing? And I think that was a big motivation, leaving that job. And after that, you know, I kind of started making a decision. It's like, this isn't who I want to be. This isn't what I need in my life anymore. And then just looking at myself personally, it's just like, you know, I probably have gout at this at this time. Um, I've got a lot of, like, joint issues. And I'm only 32. And, like, if I want to make it in this industry, if I want to, like, you know, be happy, be healthy, and all these other things, I need to start making some changes. So alcohol was the first thing to go and making other changes since then. And I'm pretty happy about it for the most part. I don't, I don't miss it, which is really good. Every now and then, I'm definitely like, you know, shift drinks at Latitude. It's like it's, it's, uh, it's winter time over there. We've got this drink called the Don and Victor, which is magical, um, and I really want one. But it's got like, it's got everything that I'm not putting in myself right now. And it's like, you know, it's like it's nice to have those temptations there and be able to say, like, you know, I don't need it right now. Yeah. For me, I was, uh, I followed a pretty, pretty consistent pattern from about the age of 15 to 30 where I would get like get really drunk uh, and I, I can start earlier than that my parents were were heavy social drinkers um, they had but if, you know they, they were they come came up in the, in the in the 50s and 60s and by the standards of the time they were just normal drinkers um, but it was always like come home from work first thing just have a drink and that was, and they they taught me how to how to bartend when I was when I was a little kid. It was it was it was always like how how do you like your your martini? It was like that was something I learned from my parents when I was as soon as I could reach the liquor cabinet, basically. And I credit that for one of the reasons I found a, a home in bartending so easily. I was sort of naturally like they they had yellow and green chartreuse in their liquor cabinet in the eighties. They were very much I don't say ahead of their time, but also just a holdover from a from an earlier time. You know, their parents were very sophisticated drinkers too. 
and they 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 paid that forward to me. So I was just part of that. But also the you know the and, and the came up in the you know high school and college when drinking is sort of a competitive sport. I mean sometimes literally when you're flip cup or, or beer pong, but just the idea of like who can drink the most and still function was sort of a badge of honor. Yeah, and that carries over into the service industry too. It really does. And yeah. we're just and New Orleans drinking well, in general. Well, and also I mean service and all three of y'all are like kind of you know high risk high achiever type of people, and that's very common in the service industry. Um, the people that thrive or mm. have that genetic predilection that also has to do with like the genetics of addiction too, mm. but it's the high achiever. And also I would take some pride sometimes and it's like how, how much, how drunk or high could I get and still like make it through a crazy shift? <laughs> like that was, that was, a, that was a fun challenge sometimes. Um, but my pattern was pretty consistent where I would, I would get like really wasted and do something stupid and embarrass myself and decide that I needed to be like really careful. So I would not drink for, or for a couple of weeks or a month. And then I would drink very, very carefully, very mindfully for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And then I would be like, okay, I, I've been good. I can start drinking normally again. And for me, normally was just all the time. constantly. Yep. And, not, and not like drunk constantly, but just a little, you know, all, but all the time. And then after a couple of months of that, I would do something stupid. And it was basically every six months, the cycle would repeat itself for approximately 15 years. Wow. And then eventually, I, you know, after like the third time waking up on the sidewalk... Um, in New Orleans. In New Orleans. <laughs> so, yeah. so healthy. Yeah, so healthy. <laughs> Great place to, to sleep it off. Um, that was, it was, and, and uh, honestly, much like Brad, uh, this was after um, I had uh, I met my now wife, then, then fiance, and she found me at like 6 a.m. My phone was dead, so she assumed I was also, because she hadn't been able to get in touch with me for the last four hours. So she started driving around and found me like asleep on the sidewalk and literally thought I was dead, because I was just unconscious on the sidewalk. And it was one of those moments where I realized that um, even if and even if I don't value my health and livelihood as much as I probably should, other people do. Like I'm not just you know it's not just about me anymore. It's about it's about her. It's about the my our families. It's about the family that we're going to create together. There's, there's just a lot more on the line for me than there was when I was you know this so flying what you, solo. What you're trying to say is you guys are trying to say I should have waited until I had a special person. No, my life no, to sober honestly, up no, more. I don't. I, I'm impressed with you because most people I know that have made a similar choice. And actually, I should I should know that. Like I said earlier, I I still drink. I'm not. I wouldn't describe myself as sober. I just drink occasionally instead of constantly. So I'll have a couple of drinks a week, maybe. Uh, at the end of a long shift, I might have a shift drink. At uh, If I'm watching a game, I will allow myself. If, it's one, if I'm at a wedding, I'll have a glass of wine. If I'm at a fancy dinner, I might have a nice, uh, something like a nice Armagnac at the end or something bougie like that. Um, <laughs> but it's not just crack open a beer whenever I feel the itch to do so. There's right, instead of constant. water. Or yeah, instead of, like, basically. Yeah. Beer instead of coffee in the morning. Uh -huh. and none of that anymore. Yeah. And I was, never, I was never, I think, addicted by the standards of addiction science. I never went through physical withdrawals. I was, it was never hard for me to go through those periods when I wasn't drinking. Um, it was, but I was always a problem drinker. Right. Which is, I think there's a small, dis like, small distinction there. Um, but basically, yeah, that, that's, and that's been my, and I, I do miss it sometimes, you know, I, I, like every now and then I feel like, you know what, I would love to just casually have a drink right now, but it's a slippery slope for me and I know that. So ba basically, inst I, and I used to, you know, instead of doing the thing I used to do where I would like be careful about it for a little while and then get cavalier again, I've, I've, I'm attacking the other side of the iceberg. Instead of like the 10% that's above the surface, I was like, I'm gonna go for that 90%, leave the 10%, and then it's, it's, 
and it's been it's been much more sustainable. I'm happier. I'm healthier. My wife is much happier. I know where I am when I wake up in the morning. And the things about <laughs> it that I miss, I miss some of the some of the social elements because I do things like while you while some of the the social bonds that you can create in these environments are are kind of superfluous and sometimes they can be very real. And I miss a lot of the people that are in that world of the bars that I used to go to and the, the people I used to hang out with. I do miss that and I think it was real and, and it's kind of a shame that it's gone but it's not part of my life anymore and that's for the better. I'm a huge karaoke fan. Is I don't know if this show knows that but <laughs> anybody who knows me knows how much I love karaoke and uh, I was honestly very scared to go not I'll say scared. You know, I don't need to like posture that like it's one of those things like you know with this new lifestyle i'm trying to live like going out to a karaoke bar and like you know being able to sit around for hours and hang out with people who are getting very drunk and see what that interaction was like like it was still a fun interaction for me and i was like very scared that that was going to be something that i wasn't going to be able to enjoy like not drinking there was a whole list of things i was really scared that i was like am i still gonna like Karaoke is one of them. I'm still going to like karaoke. Am I still going to like going to sports games? Mm. Am I still going to like dancing? It's like all these things that I never did sober just because I was always drinking. Yeah, yeah since Am you I were still going to like? Yeah, since I could. Drink. But yeah. that, but it, I think, for as, as for Steve's point about being around drunk people, um, but I think because my parents, like, my parents brought me to bars when I was a kid too. Like, I've been around drunk people for much longer than I have been drinking. So it was normal for me to be around people who were drinking while I was sober because that's how I was raised. Yeah. So it's I, I feel I still feel comfortable in that environment, and yeah, that <laughs> I've been cleaning up after drunk people for basically as long as I've been mixing <laughs> drinks, which is since I was cleaning like five. up lots of different messes. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's, that's so interesting. I, I just think it's it, there, you know there's all of these you, you don't identify as sober, and nobody here is I think in active like active recovery where you go into meetings and you're living a recovery lifestyle. You're still you know drug pushers, bartending. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, but there's all these gray areas between like complete abstinence and and recovery lifestyle, and you know kind of reeling it in. Um, but all of it, I think, Brad, you talked about the escapism piece and Certainly. using alcohol to escape and kind of to numb out for whatever stressors. Mm-hmm. You talked about when you were at uh, one particular establishment using alcohol kind of as a defense mechanism to kind of numb out the stressors. And then everyone knows that alcohol both brings you, you know, to this false uh, sense of excitation so paradoxical excitation, but also to a false sense of um, camaraderie and social, uh, which is, Brad, in particular, your upbringing yes. restricted you from that. Yeah. So that was like this newfound kind of identity where you could be close with other people. And that that comes up, like this past Thanksgiving, uh, we always go to my wife's family in, uh, in Uptown, and there's a lot of alcohol that, that gets passed around drank wine and beer and cocktails and uh, I very keenly felt this sort of it was almost like my connection with everybody around me just slowly disintegrated the more that they drank I could it, it was almost as if I could feel it and I know that it's because I, I put so much weight on having this connection because it really was absent through most of my life. And knowing what it feels like now, it, I felt it so keenly that uh, like as Thanksgiving broke up and they were all going to go out, I went home because it was, it was really upsetting to me. I, I just had this moment of 
this is about to, to move into this area that I used to live in, which is the superfluous, you know, sort of nonsensical. There, there are no problems that are going to get solved. There is no true connection that's going to get made. This is what I'm thinking, you know, whether it's true or not. I don't see the point in continuing this anymore. And so I went home, and it was it was the first time that I really just sort of felt that moment of, wow, it was so disappointing to me. Hmm. And so I don't know, like you guys sound like you're like you're able to go out and, and, and sing karaoke and uh, drink water or drink, you know, the, the soft drink, whatever. Uh, Cole, you obviously are good in those situations, but I don't personally know that, I think that I would be fine. I don't feel tempted to drink alcohol, but I think that the emotional impact on me is to the point where I'm just so not interested in it. Yeah. Um, the only way is if I'm behind the bar, you know, running the restaurant, I'm good with it. Not Go from, out to dinner, yeah. you know, that's fine. But Not from the family side, but uh, I can relate with that a little bit because since the time that I haven't been drinking, uh, I went to Bar Institute in Dallas, mm-hmm. which, you know, a big portion of that is, you know, it's an educational component, but afterwards there's all these happy hours that you go to and, like, you know, the drinks are free and, like, everybody's, like, drinking a bunch and it goes to charity. And I just... Typically, that's like kind of a place that I like to go be in a, a, a just a space I like to be in to be able to meet new people and talk about bar stuff and like just network. You know, I I, I think I do pretty well networking, and I just kind of like it was a dud for me. Like I just I could talk to some of the people that I knew. So I, there were some people there who I, I only get to see once or twice a year, and like you know, typically it's it's a good time. But being one of the few sober people was there, and luckily I was there with my friend Jeff Knott, and he was like having one drink as well. He was planning on having a pretty sober time there. So if he hadn't been there, I really would have felt just like the odd man out. And sure. I feel like a lot of those spaces and things that I, I like to do, like I'm just. I just don't fit in anymore, you know? Uh, camp Runamuck's a big one for me as well, and yeah. I think Camp Runamuck I drank at. I, I did. Like, I was there, and it's just, it is a very safe place for me, and it's just something that, like, that is one thing I haven't come to terms with with being like, can I not drink here? It's like, no, this is a place that I, I still want to drink with. I did in when I was there in August. But, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, I, I, if I wasn't drinking, I know I would have felt a little bit on the outs there. And um, that's a little bit dangerous for the industry, perhaps. Uh, like with all these events, with all these younger bartenders coming with us, some of the older bartenders, and definitely just propagating some of these habits that they have as well. Just everything being an event that is propagated by drinking. You know, it's like we, all of our events that we have are sponsored by brands. Sure. Um, and, you know, so the, there are drinks there. Drinks are made plentiful and readily available. And, you know, there's n- not really an effort to try to... Th- there is, but there's not more of an effort to stop people from drinking, I think. Um, tales of... Not the to co- drinking to excess. I think that's the, the, the difference. Is that there's even encouraging people to, to drink yeah. excessively and often to the detriment of their health. Yeah, yeah I want to I talk about uh, risky drinking really quickly and um, break in, Steve, because a lot of people... People, especially in New Orleans, especially people in the industry, don't know what risky drinking is from a medical perspective. And for women, it is seven drinks or more. Um, I'm sorry. For men, it's 15 drinks a week or more. 15 drinks a week. Yes, and, so I think you're about to say a day. That's I know. Like, I know. Well, okay, so you're like, that. that's your threshold <laughs> because you're serving people 15 drinks a day. Yeah. And then, but it's uh, for men, it's five drinks in one setting. And for women, it's three drinks in one setting and seven drinks a week. So imagine how many times you have, you know, crossed that threshold. Yeah, they're in an they're hour. Nights. In an hour, exactly. <laughs> and and, the, and what your that. industry, especially New Orleans, like it really is encouraged. Yeah. Um, and, and we have to look at that from a medical perspective because there's all these other health risks that go with that. 
craft cocktails as well is a big issue. I don't think people think about that as well, but like making drinking more sophisticated, making it a classier activity, like something that people, you know, somebody sitting down and drinking a 12-pack of PBR, you know, they're like... Yeah, that person has a problem. Like, that guy's got a problem. <laughs> that person went out and had six... Four craft co- Yeah, six yeah. Manhattans. Like, that person is a refined individual. It's just like, it's, it's the same thing. And that's something. alcohol plus alcohol, too. You yeah. Know? It's not yeah. just... Yeah, people have a much harder time... Yeah, to that, people have a much harder time tracking when you have a when you have a craft cocktail. Like a zombie, for example. How, ma- how much... How many servings of alcohol are in a zombie? That's a secret, sir. <laughs> I signed a non-disclosure. A double yeah. zombie. Okay, let's... Well, let's okay. look, look at a Manhattan. I, I can answer that though. In in the original zombie, there are five servings of alcohol. Yeah. What? So yeah, that's so if you take so that's basically drinking one five shots right there. That's, done. Done. that's right. That's basically <laughs> one zombie. And the original yeah. Don the Beach can only serve three, right? That was and the that, limit, but that was the limit. Yeah, that's fifteen servings. Of alcohol. <laughs> there you that's go. It for that's your a week. week. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was on a thread recently where somebody was asking about uh zom- somebody asked like zombie recipes. I was like, which zombie recipe? And I was like going over it, uh, like all the classic recipes because they've never been to uh, one of Jeff's seminars and they're mm. a newer bartender. So it was it was a nice conversation. But then all these newer bartenders were jumping in and it was cool because they were saying what their recipes were and I was blown away. There were some that were like. Four and a half ounces and like a single serving still, like 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 huge recipes and sure. like it was very braggadocious about it too. It was just like like this is our recipe. It's so strong. It's like, it's like, <laughs> that's wildly irresponsible. Yeah, and, and that, that gets back to like beer pong or you know yeah, it becomes a contest. See how hammered you can get or how yeah. how much you can tolerate. Yeah. yeah. Speaking to your y'all's uh, not being able to have meaningful social interactions while you're sober and everyone else has gotten drunk. I think. For me, because alcohol is very much a truth serum, you know? So there's a point where even if I'm sober and other people are drinking, where the interactions can become more meaningful, but it's, it's like it drops off precipitously. So there's a point where it's like, oh my God, people are being very open and honest and forthright and emotionally vulnerable in a way that they never would if they were sober. And then there's a tipping point where it's like, and now everything is just yeah, worthless. Then the crying begins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if there's a, there is a point where it's like, I'm really glad that I'm out here at... 1.30 in the morning with all of these people because I can really connect with even if I'm sober I can still really connect with them in a deep and meaningful level and then at 3 o'clock in the morning it's just like I gotta go to bed everyone is yeah. just useless now that, that I, that, I'd say that's my biggest turnoff is because I'm a very guarded person um, alcohol definitely takes a lot of those defenses down for me uh, so when people start opening up in that way too, it makes me very uncomfortable <laughs> because I, I can't reciprocate at all. It's like if somebody mm. wants to open up and tell me like a deep dark secret, I'm not going to be like, oh yeah, me too. This one time I killed a man, <laughs> like I never told any about it. <laughs> That's why I don't drink anymore. So I don't tell anybody that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think so much of it goes back to like what I was saying earlier, like sort of rethinking the way that we talk about alcohol. The, this stands out in my mind so clearly. There was this gentleman that came in during Tales of the Cocktail and sat down, and, and we're having this conversation about, you know, he's a, obviously a bartender, a newer bartender. And he gets to this point where he he's makes this statement that's, you know what, man? What we're really doing is we're selling stories. <laughs> and I couldn't help myself. I said, man... We are selling drugs. <laughs> you need to rethink yourself. Right. Yes, th- there are stories involved that help you sell drugs. Can- like Camp Run Amok. Camp Run Amok is designed to give you guys a great experience and indirectly or directly associate it with a specific brand so that when you return to your job, you think about 
whatever bourbon that you had and how much fun you had at Run Amok. And when you get to talking about it with a guest, you're like, you know, you know what I really like? Wild turkey. I do love wild turkey, right? <laughs> it's good bourbon, yeah. <laughs> really and good. It, yes, it, it could be good bourbon, but there is an association somewhere in there that comes from Camp Runamuck. And I think that that aspect, the marketing aspect that comes with alcohol, is so ingenious because the legality has offered a chance for for these companies to sort of really dig into the to the like nooks and crannies of of sort of programming us as bartenders of yeah. how and what we serve. Yeah, that, people people can really the brands, especially with Camp Runamuck, I think that's been the most successful example of of people really developing a relationship with a brand that becomes part of their personal yes. identity. Yeah. I know, and I see, Steve, you've got your chinar over on your water bottle. I do. So, yeah, yeah, right there, there you go. <laughs> I'm but wearing a Fernet hat right now. Right. <laughs> yeah, they give me free stuff. I mean, it's <laughs> Thinking about it as what it is. It's a drug, just like any other drug. And the stigma that we attach to drugs in general, that oh, you know, drugs are bad. Well, drugs aren't bad. Drugs, drugs help. You know, we take drugs for high cholesterol, for blood pressure. We take drugs, you know, obviously alcohol. We take drugs in the morning when we're tired and we have some caffeine. Like drugs are drugs. The drugs are things that we use as a tool, as you know, escapism, what it, whatever it is. And then go from there and identify, I am misusing this drug. This right. drug can be used for an intended purpose. I'm I'm drinking more than the five drinks I should have in a day. Or right, 15 and, and and drinking for a different, like you said, escapism for yourself and for that connectivity mm -hmm. that you were missing, and so you were replacing the dopamine that's natural in most people, in many people, not most people, in many people's lives. You were replacing that with with a drug that was giving you that ability to connect, or at least perceive that you were connected. Sure, yeah. Wow. I, I want to plug really quickly the kind of the, or I want to talk about the um, reason for some of this background in addiction. Um, you know, people have like a genetic predilection. You've talked about your family, Steve, and um, people that have the genetic predilection, they may have uh, several inborn errors of metabolism, several genetic mutations. You see it very starkly in in big families where everyone has an opioid or alcohol or some other addiction and that's who I tend to treat as people with the ism of addiction people that when they first took that opioid in particular that's my specialty people that first took that opioid and it opened their eyes to this place that they've never been before and then they keep taking it and keep taking it and keep taking it but then there's also people that um, really don't have the ism but have just like these really traumatic or stressful or suppressed lives and so they have the stress. And so you can have the inborn errors of metabolism and the genetic predilection, the biological meaning, uh, the biological background that can cause the addiction. You can have stress that can cause the addiction. And then you just add drug. And so you can force a mouse to be addicted by just giving them the drug over and over and over. So I have a question for you. Yeah. So people that are predisposed genetically versus people that sort of develop it, what role does habituation play in people that are predisposed versus people that aren't? Like, because everybody has, like, you you you're really hungry. You have food. You you get the reward of it. Right. But there's diminishing returns. The more you eat, you start to feel full. You don't get the dopamine burst. But if you continue to eat more and more, habituation, you know, kind of increases that horizon where it, it, you get more and more dopamine. And especially happened like with alcohol, developing a tolerance really is born out of habituation. But 
how does that play a role in people that are predisposed versus not? Yeah, and so what's interesting is when those that do not have the genetic inborn errors in metabolism tend to continue every time they, they take the drug, they get a new spike uh, that goes up and then it comes back down to normal dopamine levels. Okay. As opposed to those that have some dopamine issues, they don't have good dopamine tone because of the biology. Okay. Then they go down below normal. Sure. And then at some point, most of the patients that I talk to uh, that are using opioids in particular, you know, by the time they're using regularly, they're never getting high anymore. They're just using to feel almost a normalcy, right. but they're still not even getting that dopamine surge. They're getting a dopamine surge above their baseline, but it still isn't rising up to even a normal dopamine surge. So they don't have the ability to recycle and to mm. continue to keep that kind of stability and resilience. All right. I think that's a good opportunity for us to segue into our regular let's make a drink segment, <laughs> so, which is especially ironic with today's episode. So we're going we're gonna to take a break. Uh, one of us, we'll, we'll decide in a minute, is going to hop behind the bar, make a, make a very light, low-alcohol cocktail for you. I think that'll be the most appropriate way to do it. Low proof. And then we'll be, uh, we'll be back for the second half in just a minute. All right, we're jumping behind the bar again with another segment of Around with Stephen Cole's Behind the Bar. This week, we've got T. Cole Newton making us a fantastic low-proof cocktail. What you got for us, Cole? This is a drink I like to call the Bartleby. It's named for a uh, adorable rat creature from Jeff Smith's uh, <laughs> graphic novel, um, Bone? Did you ever read Bone? I, you know what? Yeah, when I heard Bartleby, I was like, oh, what is that? Yeah. But uh, I, you know, they were running it in uh, the newspaper, the Charlotte Observer, when I was a kid for a little while. Really? Yeah. I didn't realize it got uh, like syndicated in, in, in newspapers because it was a regular. It was a regular comic book. It was mm-hmm. a full page, you know, that had issues. And I'm pretty sure they ran it as strips, too. I don't know if that was the same thing. I, I know it, there's just a ton to that graphic novel. So it's, it's intense. It's, yeah. it's like, it's like the, 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 the whimsical creature design of something like Pogo, um, but with on an epic, like sort of almost Tolkien-esque scope. Yeah. So, but I really like it. And one of the characters is a rat creature. And there's a, this whole race of rat creatures that turns out they're just sort of misunderstood villains. Um, and one of them kind of goes missing and is, uh, winds up with our heroes and his name is, he winds up being named Bartleby. And I'm pretty sure the character in Bone is named after Bartleby the Scrivener, who is sort of the original, uh, anti Wall Street character from, uh, uh Herman Melville's, uh, <laughs> novella, which I haven't read, but the main character in Bone, Bone is, uh, Phone Bone specifically. There's several bones. This layers upon layers. All layers right, upon layers. So yeah. what's going on inside this cocktail? He's, well, he's a he's a fan of Melville. Is my is my point. And people <laughs> keep falling asleep when he uh, uh, <laughs> tries to explain Moby Dick. <laughs> Anyhow, Bartleby. It's a we're going for a low ABV cocktail. A lot of a lot of the ways you can get a low ABV cocktail is by sort of inverting ratios. So this is what's called the Bartleby. It is essentially an inverted Manhattan crossed with uh, a whiskey ginger. So two classic. Whiskey cocktails, uh, in inverted in their ratios and and presented as in a low AB format. So uh, I'm going to start with just a quarter ounce of lime juice. That'll get going. There's a little bit of acidity in the lime juice. I originally, when I was formulating this cocktail, I started with uh, a lot more lime juice because it has sweet vermouth in it, being a Manhattan variation. It turns out vermouth also has a decent amount of acidity. So I wound up dialing all the way back to a quarter ounce. Then I'm going to do a half ounce of 
rye whiskey. Just a little bit, you know. You, you want to have that backbone. It'll help the other flavors stand up. Then I'll do a full two ounces of a Carpano Antigua Vermouth, a, a nice sweet vermouth. Vermouth, honestly, even even in his early days when we start, people started adding vermouth to cocktails, it was to lighten cocktails because cocktails were very, very, very strong for most of the 1800s. And then people around the end of the 1800s were like, maybe we should add something that isn't hard <laughs> liquor to these. Uh, and then we'll top it off with about two ounces of ginger beer. We currently use Hoo-Hoo's fine locally crafted ginger brew and a couple of dashes of the Fee Brothers uh, barrel-aged old-fashioned bitters. Oh, I love those bitters. And then just build it in the glass, uh, fill it with ice. That'll help incorporate all the flavors, give it a light stir. And then uh, you have, uh, oh, and a garnish with a little lime wheel because it's pretty. And you have the Bartleby, a nice inverted Manhattan whiskey ginger variation. Cool. That looks super refreshing. Would you recommend that this would be a drink you could batch out for like a party and serve in like a larger amount? Yeah, you could probably make a pitcher of this. Um, I would, you could batch out pretty much everything else in advance and then add the, the ginger beer at the last minute and, and in a pitcher, give it a little stir and yeah. then pour it over ice. I think yeah. that'd be, be great. It's a nice, refreshing, it's a crowd pleaser. It's got a lot of bright flavors. Um, it'll, it, it goes down easy and it, and it won't ruin your party by getting everyone wasted. Perfect. Let's grab a couple of these and head back to the table and, uh, get on with this episode. All righty. All righty. Y'all we're back with around with Stephen Cole. Once again, I'm your host, Stevie Mana, and this is T Cole Newton. Sorry for the delay. I didn't re- I was looking away. I didn't realize you were kicking it over to me. Um, Arwen, I, one of the reasons I wanted to have you specifically on the show to uh, d- talk about addiction is because you don't. It's not a binary for you in the way that it is for for some people who who, who treat addiction to talk about addiction. Uh, it's very much abstinence is the answer. Right. And I know I know that you drink. Right. <laughs> you are yeah. like I said. You have been a regular of the bar for many years. That's right. Uh, and so not having that that binary relationship because I don't because as as, as we've discussed in the first half of the episode I still drink occasionally. I just drink with extreme moderation now. And I think that that can be an example that you can, you don't have to quit entirely. You don't have to go the AA route of just never doing drugs again, or including alcohol. And so I wanted to like how how difficult is that? How hard it is is it to go from having a problematic relationship or even an addiction relationship to a a level of moderation? How rare is that? It's I think it's rare. I mean I think. Uh, I mean, I'm sitting here with three people who are in uh, who are rare form. I mean, you guys are all in. We scoured the whole city. That's right. <laughs> uh, but it's amazing. Um, but I think it is rare. So when I work with a patient in my outpatient practice, that they come to me for mental health or addiction reasons or just to feel better. Um, I'm a psychiatrist, so I can help people kind of feel cognitively brain improvement, uh, cognitively enhanced is what I like to say. Um, and when they come to me, I ask them to identify three goals, three mental health goals. And if that goal is abstinence, then I can help them with that through medication and through other tools. But oftentimes, a lot of people really find that they have either problematic drinking or drug use or, you know, embarrassing times that they want to never have happen again or they want to, you know, keep their relationship and that's their goal. Uh, and so maybe they need to reel it in and uh, do a little bit more of moderation. And so we have medicine that can help with that. We have lifestyles that can help with that. Um, but then if someone tries moderation and it doesn't satisfy them, it doesn't satisfy their mental health needs, then and they keep on 
binge drinking or going down the path that ends up unhealthy, then we need to really look at abstinence. And so, but I, I do agree that it's not, abstinence isn't the goal for everybody. When I'm working in a drug and alcohol recovery center or when someone's, you know, using heroin every day, abstinence is the goal. But when someone is, um, you know, drinking in a social setting and they have some physical ailments and they need to kind of reel it in and get healthier and try and stay below the risky drinking, then maybe abstinence isn't the goal. I don't know. And, you know, now we have legalized marijuana in a lot of states. And so is abstinence the goal when we're talking about a legal smokable, you know, or edible? It's not necessarily. It might be, um, but it's really about health. And so I want I want to think about what's healthy for people. My sister wound up in... Well, wound up. She is also, I mean, much... <laughs> She carried on the family tradition of drinking very heavily. And then she wound up, uh, she describes herself as not necessarily, she doesn't necessarily know if she was addicted to alcohol, but she knew that she was clinically depressed. And her antidepressants put her in a situation where she couldn't drink anymore. And the way that she, and, and so, but she's gotten very, very into Alcoholics Anonymous. Which and and hasn't had a drink I think in, in close to close to five years at this point. We're we're just very impressive. Um, and and what one of the things that I've learned through her and j- sort of just in, in some more casual reading about addiction is the the degree to which having a social network is is key. And I, this was there was a the, the the mice that you're talking about that you can you can get mice addicted to cocaine. Um, the mice that keep going back and getting more and more doses of the drug tend to do so, according to one study I read, this might not, you, you would probably know more about yeah. this than I would, um, but they, they did so when they were in an environment where they were isolated from other mice. It's and right. mice that were in a, in a group that mirrored a natural social environment for mice just stopped using that drug all the time. They just didn't press the lever anymore. Same with monkeys, same with humans. So, you know, we have, there's a handful that have that inborn era of metabolism, that mutation, that are going to just chronically be more likely. But uh, to press the lever to go get the cocaine. Um, and there's some studies with monkeys that I love where they took, they took a, a set of monkeys that had some alpha, one alpha and a whole bunch of non-dominants. And so the non-dominants that were bullied by the alpha, the alpha never pressed the lever for the cocaine, but the, the ones that were bullied that were underneath, that were the non-dominant, they were going for it. They were, you know, they were being traumatized and they were pressing the lever for cocaine. And then they switched the sets. And so they put some of the non-dominants to where they were in the dominant position. And when they were in a dominant position, they then didn't seek the cocaine. They didn't seek the reward because they had the reward. They had their natural reward, which is amazing. Um, And I I just, Mm. I love that study. So I, I think... With your sister having that that twelve step that connectivity, there's a, a couple of papers that have been written recently that I cite a lot that are talking about the opposite of addiction is connectivity, and you know. In so what you're saying is, I'm right. <laughs> yes, that's right, Brad. Cool. You you set the groundwork for this. Damn it, Brad's right about yes. something else. <laughs> uh, the but, streak continues. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, play the lottery today. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean, I think it's an important thing is that we we do need that dopamine tone just to survive. You know, we need to have uh, that connectivity, which is where 
the 12-step comes in very well. I mean, it works for millions and millions and millions of people. And part of it is that a lot of people that have struggled with addiction throughout their lives have started with that lack of connectivity. And so when they find a group of people, well, first they find a group of people doing drugs or alcohol and, you know, and and getting kind of... Uh, doing karaoke and getting uh, <laughs> getting uh, emotionally open and then they find that they can't have it without the alcohol or drugs and then they move over to 12 step so it really serves a lot of people very healthily with 12 step and I'm not I'm not super familiar with it as well but I, I've heard one of the one of the struggles with it is the 12th step is giving yourself over to higher power is that correct that's like two. Is that that's, two? That's good. That's very early in clearly, the Clearly, clearly not familiar with the 12th yeah, step first. program. My sister the has an interesting... Step. Is it the first one? Yeah. No, the first one is admitting you're powerless over your addiction. Right. And then the and second then the is that, that you are that, that submitting to a higher power. And that is, a, that is a stumbling block for a lot of people. But my sister, has, her example is that her higher power is just gravity. That, okay. That there are, is her just acknowledging that there are forces that she can't control... And that and so that you don't that it doesn't necessarily have to be a religious power to which you're submitting. It's just admitting that there are things that are beyond your control, and for you at this point in your life, your relationship with substance abuse is one of those things. Is that typical with twelve step? Because from what and I, I've I, I mean I have anecdotal like experience with this more than anything else. It seems like it's more of from what I, I've, I've ascertained, it's it's more of a push for religion. So, no, I don't no. think so at all. I think it, it, I mean, here we are in New Orleans, a very uh, religious-based background, <laughs> right? And so it's pretty much anywhere you go, you'll find a different uh, subset of people running meetings that have a different interpretation of their own personal God. And so that's, it's your own personal higher power. Cool. And it, it, it sometimes is mixed up with whoever is running the chairing the meeting or whatever the uh the culture is in the area but you know i moved here from california and there was uh, there were more buddhist and uh atheist meetings than there were anything else cool that's a good misconception to clear up. yes clear it up i remember when tiger woods after the first fall from grace where he is like his wife broke the back of it like attacked him with a golf club and it became this huge thing he came out and had a press conference and in the like in like 10 minutes went through the first four steps like it was clear that he had gone to sex sex addicts anonymous i'm I'm not sure what the sexaholics anonymous it's not very anonymous if he's having a press conference (laughs) (laughs) but he was like i was like I've reconnected with my Buddhist heritage and I would like to apologize to the people that I've wronged. It was like, this press conference, he's just, what, what a through. pro. That's he's right. ripping through the 12 steps. Yeah. That's amazing. Made it. <laughs> birdie, birdie. <laughs> yeah, like way ahead of par. He's like, <laughs> um, but I also think people use that, especially celebrities you see, use that as an, ex- they, they, like, they t- tend to blame their bad behavior on addiction when it could just be just being a dick. That's like, right. And how so, much, do, do people use addiction as as an excuse well, to get absolutely. out of trouble? Yeah, I mean, I'm a forensic psychiatrist as well, so I deal with the legal. Yeah, what's and that criminal. like? <laughs> I know it's really fun. It's it's tragic and awful and interesting and uh, riveting. Uh, so I deal with a lot of uh, criminal and civil lawsuits and kind of looking at um, the how where the act where the bad act occurred and why it occurred and so did it occur because it stemmed from a psychiatric issue or did it occur because the person is 
bad? Are they a bad person? Or are they a mad person? Is so this kind is of, whether or not you can avoid jail by saying, I have a problem? Yeah, or I mean, or downward departure or other, other ways to kind of uh, determine whether someone was sane at the time of the crime or whether they were able to plead insanity. And so I think a lot about the philosophy of what sanity is. <laughs> and um, I also think about, you know, whether someone is stemming from their addiction. Is their bad behavior because of the addiction or are they a bad person? <laughs> so there's like a lot of crossover, you know, there's a lot of unknowns. And you can't know until you have that sobriety or have that uh, clarity. And then, you know, some people sober up and they're still assholes. So I, I, so <laughs> right here, right here. But I guess my question what or at least what I've found at fault in, in sort of examining well AA would be one but just addiction in general is that idea that it is something apart from you and it's very easy to not take personal responsibility for your behavior and to chalk it up to addiction uh, you know I personally I have a lunatic that lives inside of me it is me but it also is a different me I know that it's there I know that I mean, occasionally he uh, raises his head up a little higher than other times. Says, you know, Brad, fuck it. Get the bottle of Benedictine. Let's you know, burn this place to the ground. <laughs> How did your voice get but, deeper? <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's oh, the man, yeah, but, Evil Brad is scary. But still, <laughs> Steve it's, nodding it's right me. <laughs> and I've seen and known other people that have chalked their addiction up to this thing that's outside of them. Like, that they don't have control over it. That it is not... There's just this lack of sort of culpability, and with twelve step and that sort of thing, like the higher power aspect, always struck me as a way. It's just the slight little back door of you can just kind of uh, a cop out. Yeah, exactly. Like right. you can cop out and not truly like take it. Like I, I'm still working on this. I'm going to work on it for the rest of my life. You know, I am by no means truly emotionally connected. I'm, I am. You know, I'm trying though, and I, I, some days are better than other days. My wife can tell you that, <laughs> but I'm trying, and I'm trying to be honest with myself and really take a hard look at who I am, how I got here, and how I move forward. And I take total responsibility for all the nasty, shitty things that I've done in the past, whether I was drunk or not. You know, it's me, and that. Yeah, the cop out just bugs the shit out of me. Yeah, and so in order to, I. I I hear that a lot and I hear from, you know, non-religious people. And like you said, Steve, that, you know, thinking that, 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 that your higher power was a push towards religiosity. Um, and so I use, I kind of talk about your intuition as a higher power or like your sister says, what did she say? Gravity. Gravity is your higher power. So something maybe, you know, kind of your gut feeling, your intuition, but being able to not have it as a cop out, because that's something that a lot of people that struggle with addiction really have always had a lack of accountability. And uh, so what we try to teach in addiction treatment settings and 12 Steps helps teach this as well is both a self-efficacy and an accountability towards yourself and towards others. And that's just general health, right? Like, you know, that's a generally mentally healthy way to be is being accountable towards others being, you know, and Nicole, you said that when you, you know, were... Uh, starting to date Lilia, you became kind of more accountable towards other people and towards yourself. Mm-hmm. But because you realized there was this outside force uh, more than just yourself. So, because it is, it's, I mean, you, you come really 
it comes down to acting selfishly, right? Yes. And not knowing yeah. that it's selfish. Or well, see, and I guess I I feel like I knew all along, somehow, some way, that this was destructive and selfish. I mean, I got into to lifting weights and taking care of my well, sort of taking care of my body as a way of telling myself that you know I yes I'm drinking but I'm also doing something really good for myself because I I run and I I go and I lift and I go to the gym but then I will leave and I'll go to work and I'll get plowed and it was a way of of kind of like telling my like like my life was a scale and even though there was this really heavy bad thing I would put this really heavy good thing on the scale and and everything was okay mm-hmm. and once yeah once I guess I acknowledged that and stop the destructive side that was really what needed to happen that was it didn't matter how much good I was doing because the bad was so bad the bad was so destructive and I think that a lot of us as bartenders do that yeah or maybe just as people I mean and again it goes back to so I I said earlier in the first half that we were you know we're around where this table is chock full of overachievers and high risk takers and part of that is a you have a genetic predilection to this risk taking and to kind of pushing yourself and part of that has to do with that dopamine spike um you know i do genetic testing in my practice to see if people have a certain level of genetic errors and some of them are fixable uh with uh with vitamin supplements um prescribed medications as well and so a lot of us probably at this table have some metafolate um, reductase genetic errors, maybe some um, inherited uh, GABA genetic uh, mutations. And that makes you kind of come from this perspective where you have these feelings. So, sure. you know, because what you think, what you do is driven by chemistry, what, you, uh, what your chemistry is causes you to think and do things. So uh, it's very likely that there are some of these inborn errors of metabolism that like the methylfolate reductase gene is a huge one. And I, I talk about that in my private practice a lot. And I do testing for this uh, particular gene, MTHFR. And then we can circumvent, we can cir- circumnavigate the error with a prescribed vitamin, which is a really cool thing. And then people feel a little ease. It doesn't fix everything but it definitely helps one feel just a little more at ease so from my perspective i'm wondering about the gaba so gaba obviously if if that if i have that predisposition is that essentially an inability to relax and so as especially with alcohol for me where it gives you that that gaba like like volume or yeah or whatever it is that it it sort of knocks that edge off. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And so the GABA glutamate, uh, the glutamate is excitable. GABA is relaxing. And so um, if you have a a, a genetic predisposition to having that more on the excitable end, then you're a more anxious person. You're a more high-strung person. And then, you know, if you... uh, And you might respond to alcohol stronger. Hmm. So... That's that's great. <laughs> um, one thing I want to talk about a little bit because I think at the table right now, uh, among people who've kind of made the decision to either moderate extremely or to stop drinking, I'm the newest to this uh, lifestyle. Um, 
one thing that really annoys me is one it's hard to work behind a bar uh people are always trying to buy me shots always trying to buy me (laughs) shots and i have to say oh i'm actually not drinking right now and one it piques their curiosity and two when i tell them it's like yeah i'm trying to be sober uh, or I've not been drinking for this amount of time. They always followed up that by saying congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I, there's it bugs me for a couple reasons. Uh, one, it always comes across as a little condescending, like ah, like like, like patronizing. Uh, I yeah. can I can drink this. You did it, you, you big boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 just like I don't I don't need that. I'm not looking for that at all. Uh, but two. Um, uh, it's just, I don't know if it's a New Orleans thing or not, but there's like just some normalcy that, like, you know, it, you just feel a little bit ostracized. And I do think it's a little bit of a New Orleans thing because just drinking and s- substance abuse is very much inherent to like just the culture of the city. Mm-hmm. It's just like, it's like, laissez les bon temps rouler and, you know, drink and do whatever and everything like that. And that's just part of what it is to live here. Um, that you just feel like a little bit of an outsider. And like, there's a point, there's a, some point where it's just like, Man, I'm just going to start drinking again, so people don't just like wonder why. Her. <laughs> yeah, so I don't have to like go through this social interaction every single time somebody offers me a drink. I find if for because I actually quit drinking while I was bartending a couple of years before I, I cut way 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 back in my normal life, and the excuse that I was able to use if people like, hey do you want do you want a shot I just and I started just telling people oh I don't I don't drink while I'm working. And people, people yes. sort of instinctively understand that. It's like, oh, oh, you take this, you take your job you seriously. <laughs> like, working. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh yeah, no, you're at work. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So that's I, I don't go into the I don't have to go into the whole story that way. That is, that is like, yes, I'm I don't drink when I work. I also don't really drink when I don't work. But they don't need to know. <laughs> but you that. don't have to say that. And yeah. I think the congratulatory remark is really born out of an awkward mm-hmm. piece of that interaction where yeah. they are having a cocktail in front of you. I think the stigma attached to alcohol is somebody that doesn't drink. You know, there's this idea of if it even touches your lips, it's like, give me the bottle. It's over with. You're going to find me tomorrow morning. Right. Water, like, and it's not, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is there is not a one size fits all approach for everybody. Everybody's yeah. addiction is a little bit different. So they're, they're born they're, They have a cocktail in front of them and you just told them, well, I don't drink. So, that's incredibly awkward. Right. So, there's a lot. I mean, congratulations. So, it's like, uh, yeah, happy birthday. <laughs> what do I say? But for those that struggle with addiction, truly struggle with addiction, there's a lot of guilt and shame. So if someone is saying congratulations, it could be just because of that awkwardness. I totally agree, Brad. But yeah. I think also if they personally have guilt, then they're going to oh, sure. turn it around yeah. and, and say well, something back to you. I think that there's also just an assumption that something bad happened. Yes. It's just like, mm. it's like you clearly bottomed out you poor yeah. son of a bitch <laughs> congratulations also, also for pulling your shitty life together when people say congratulations there's an element of and I think this speaks a little bit to what Arlen was to say that there's an element of almost jealousy it's like oh man you're doing something that I kind of know that I should be doing and yeah. I can't oh they're or all jealous haven't. they're all jealous of me yeah, <laughs> yeah but for real the shadow it's like, king it's like man I've, I've made a lot of terrible choices in my life because of drinking and you're not drinking and maybe I shouldn't drink so congratulations to you for doing that thing that I can't yeah see and yeah. then in that though you know, I do the same thing as you. When somebody says, offers me a shot, I say, oh, I, I don't drink while I'm working. But then you will never have that moment. Maybe, Steve, and you saying that I have stopped drinking, you are planting a seed in that person's brain that could, somewhere down the road, cause them to identify their problem. I mean, yeah, this is a big supposition, but maybe you could plant a, you're planting a seed in that person's brain where they're going to actually face their addiction somewhere. So should we be saying... I don't drink while I'm working to avoid the situation or do you have the uncomfortable conversation with the guest 
I mean, I guess this this kind of may fall in that no religions, no politics new, uh, the bar thing, but you know. new uh, new nickname for myself is definitely Johnny Apple Sober. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to plant seeds of sobriety. Yeah, I like right. that. All right, y'all. We're pretty much at the end here. Uh, before we do our wrap ups, I mean, one thing I would like to say, uh, touch on a little bit, uh, is alcohol bad? You know, like I feel like some people could come to this show and just be like, you know, there's some hypocrisy here, perhaps, or maybe we're trying to say that all drinking's bad or that alcohol is a bad thing. Um, I, I want to lead off and say no. You know, like I, I am very happy that, like, you know, I my I have not bottomed out from like drinking, and I've had some very good times being able to uh, enjoy alcohol and uh, you know all the memor- memories that I've had with like being able to go out and drink with my friends and certain events and things like that have been good. And I don't think that's a bad thing when people do drink, and I don't never judge anybody who does do that. I mean, it's a personal decision for me, and my personal decision is this particularly. So. I don't know. What are your thoughts for that, everyone? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be wildly hypocritical for any of us bartenders to blanketly dis- ascribe negativity to alcohol. Um, I think alcohol can be a, a force for good. It's, it's, it's a naturally occurring substance. It's calorie dense. Uh, people, bl- what people considered it a gift from God for most of humanity's existence for, for a very real way. Um, and I, but I do think that that is like there are positives that can be can be gleaned from alcohol. It can it can help develop a sense of community. It can it can create it can help you forge meaningful connections. Um, and while one can have a, a a a problematic relationship, an addictive relationship with it, while it can while it can really destroy people's lives, it can also really bring people together in in a very meaningful way. And I think, and, it, and it, that's one of the things that I think about for a bar as well. Like I own a bar, and I and it becomes a very it becomes an extension of people's homes. It, it's a community center in a, in, a, in a way. And I think that, and I mean, and you look at any any sort of revolution, like the American Revolution started in bars. Like social movements start over a, a pint. <laughs> not to not to like this is going to sound a little weird, but the the song uh, "Tub Thumping" by Chumbawamba it's about how social movements are bred from having a drink and then getting up and saying what you believe, and that people alcohol gives people that ability sometimes. <laughs> anarchists, <laughs> everything out of every they were anarchists. Yes, they were. <laughs> yeah, they were. They were. They were anarchists that made pop music to to, to breed anarchists. Oh, They're that far away from so killing weird. Franz Ferdinand. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, I don't think alcohol is inherently bad. But it it was not it's it's not a drug that I should abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think personal choice is incredibly important and true personal choice. And in in order to do that, I think that first of all, I don't think alcohol is bad. But I think that the way that we talk about substances in general needs to change because mm. the way we talk about alcohol is completely different than the way we talk about marijuana or. Or opiates, you know, it's it's first we we look at it from two different points of view: legal or not legal. That your body doesn't give a shit if it's legal or not legal. It's going to respond to that thing the way that it responds. So, in changing the way that we speak about alcohol, will open up different avenues to actually find help or identify that, that you're having a, a struggle with it, you know, a little bit faster or, or whatever it may be. But that's my view. Is Especially spirits, spirits professionals. Yes, um, <laughs> in toxicologists. I'm calling you that forever now. Yeah. I think that we, advisor. we need to be honest about what it is that we do, and the public will then see it for what it is, and stop demonizing the fact that it's a drug because everybody wants to get high. Whatever you want to get high on, I mean, whether it's caffeine, sugar, alcohol, rock opiates, climbing. 
whatever it is, we all want yeah. to trigger that reward center in our brain, and everybody wants to get high. There's nothing wrong with getting high, but you know, all things in moderation. That's right. Yeah, and I think I mean I'm I'm on the uh, same bandwagon as all of y'all, where we I, I don't see it as an absolute. I see there's a lot of a spectrum of you know drinking too much, reeling it in. Having addiction is a whole nother level. Having that ism where we have the brain chemistry that just, you know, turns super on when you take the drug and then we need to probably have some abstinence there. But for the other people, like moderation is a real and realistic avenue. And I think uh, it's really based on a whole bunch of things from, you know, connectivity like we talked about, Mm. the brain chemistry, um, other rewards that's a huge issue is finding that other reward cool all right i think that's going to do us pretty well here here at around with stephen cole we do like to wrap up with what we call parting shots it's just an opportunity for our guests to just say a last little piece reintroduce themselves and let them know if people are interested in who they are where they can find them so let's go ahead and start with you arwin arwin podesta md and uh podesta wellness p-o-d-e-s-t-a wellness.com saints have scored a touchdown yeah <laughs> I'm on my way to the dome after this. Yeah, I'm right. excited. And who are you, sir? I'm oh, no, they, they, they called him out of bounds. Uh, <laughs> I'm Brad Smith, uh, the tightly wound, dogmatic dickwad at Beach Berries, <laughs> Latitude 29. Uh, you can find me there most days, either physically or in spirit. And, uh, man, there you have it. Coolio. Well, once again, I'm Stevie Mata. I'm T. Cole Newton. And this has been Around with Stephen Cole. Thanks a lot for tuning in, y'all. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. Thanks, y'all. Theme music for Around with Stephen Cole is by Derek Freeman. Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Thanks again to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.